I've been thinking about this story this week, and it's like uh, a Jesus road trip story uh, with, a, with a stop at a, some roadside um, uh, location. So I was thinking back at some road trips I've taken in life. I remember in my 20s, early 20s, so uh, think the days of the dinosaurs for some of you. That's what my children tend to think when I start to talk about how old I am. Uh, but in those days when I was in college, uh, I had a good friend who uh, had moved back to Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, his father was the senior pastor of uh, United Methodist Church, a large United Methodist Church in uh, Cleveland. And uh, so I would go on, I, I went on three road trips to uh, visit Dave uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. And so I could do it at the drop of a hat. You know, you're in college, now I had a job, I was the associate pastor at a church, but I had some flexibility, so periodically I would just hop in the car, and you know, it was only three times, so it wasn't like uh, over uh, a three-year period, two-year period, so uh, I would just hop in the car, uh, I would call Dave first and say, hey, I'm gonna head out in your direction. Now, one of those road trips, admittedly, was Dave's wedding, so I knew about that long in advance, and it wasn't like a hop in the car. But, you know, the, the, to be footloose and fancy free, to be able to hop in the car and just go somewhere, is not something that's really possible anymore. Um, uh, we don't just hop in the car and go somewhere. Linda's got a job, I've got a job, Joshua, who lives with us, has got a job. Uh, Somebody's got to watch the dog. There are all these arrangements to be made. Now, for Jesus, his job seems to be to get on the road. Wherever he is, we know whatever he's going to do, he's going to do it there for a while, and then he's just going to move on. He's going to constantly be on the move. Now, to set this story up that I'm reading you today, Jesus, uh, Jesus has developed a reputation. He's working in Judea, which imagine the southern part of, of uh, Israel. He's working, uh, he's working and teaching, and the Pharisees get wind of him, and they are calling him out. And because they're calling him out, Jesus decides to go back to Galilee. Now, to get to Galilee, he has to go directly through Samaritan country. Uh, and so that is where we find Jesus today on his way back. Uh, I'm skipping the very beginning of chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. It's about who baptizes more than somebody else. And it really, I don't think it really... Um, Jesus, to get back to Galilee, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sichar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into city, to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? 
Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will proclaim things to us. Jesus said to her, I am the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He can't be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on the way with him. It's a long story. It's a long story. And I wonder sometimes when you read stories, because it's only in the Gospel of John that this story is told. I wonder why some stories are told in one book, not in another book. What is it about those kinds of stories? And then I remember all the things that I've learned and have come to recognize that each one of the Gospels Four people didn't sit down in the same room and say, hey, I'm going to cover this part. You, you don't have to. Hey, I'm going to cover this part. You, you take care of that. Uh, hey, I'm not going to do that part. I'm leaving that out completely. You know, Matthew and Luke, you take care of some birth narratives. Mark, I'm just starting as an adult. <laughs> John, I'm starting before the world began. I'm beginning, way back in the beginning. Uh, they didn't do that. Instead, they wrote these down. These were written down long after Jesus was dead and raised again, at least 30 years or more after his death. And the Gospel of John, probably at least uh, 60 to 90 years afterwards. Um, 
When they're writing it down, they're telling stories that their communities need to hear and need to know about uh, among the stories, which ones really have come to matter for us, which are the ones that really inform who we are. You know, the question may have come up for the John, the Johannine community, uh, where did all these Samaritans come from that are in our church? Let me tell you a story. Jesus was on his way from Judea to Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. He stopped at a well. A Samaritan woman met him, and the rest is history. That's one way it could have happened. Maybe there's another reason to tell the story. Maybe the story needs to be told because the first evangelist was a woman. Maybe there are some guys in, uh, in the Johannine community who are saying, you know, only men should be teaching. And the Johannine community says, are you aware that the first the Samaritans among us came to us, not because some man preached to them, but because an unknown woman, we can't even remember her name, unfortunately, went out and told all of Sakhar, one of the cities in Samaria, about Jesus. And they came to faith because of her. They came to faith because of her. Maybe they needed to know about this first woman evangelist. Maybe there were some Jewish folks who were saying, you know, those Samaritans, they have no place. Well, they had a place for Jesus. They had a place for Jesus. And maybe that story did all of those things. I don't know. Jesus stops at the side of the road. We see that he's tired. The disciples go on into the city to get him some food. He's sitting by the well. A woman comes in the middle of the day. I really wish we knew her name. I would love to be able to call her from the, you know, by name. But it's a woman, the woman at the well. She comes and she's got to draw water. It's just, it's just Jesus and the woman. And they engage in a conversation. Now, just to set the scene a tad bit more and point you back, just in the last chapter of the Gospel of John, we have a religious scholar who comes to have a conversation with Jesus and is so dumbfounded that Jesus just has a one-sided you know, monologue for most of the time because Nicodemus, who gets a name, doesn't, doesn't understand anything Jesus is talking about, being born from above and all that good kind of stuff. Now, in chapter 4, we've got a woman who engages Jesus constantly, back and forth, back and forth. I want this water. What does this water look like? Where did you get it from? You don't have a bucket. Where's the practicality of all of this? What is this about? Are you saying you're better than we are because you worship on the mountain that's called Jerusalem and we worship here on this mountain? You know, the whole area is pretty mountainous, up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, in the midst of all of this, here's Jesus, tired from the road trip. By the way, just to give you kind of an image of how far it is, if you're walking from Jerusalem to, uh, say, Cana in Galilee, it's about, it's about 70, it's about 68 miles, about 107 kilometers. So it's not really that far. I mean, you think, hey, that's not road trip. I could hop in the car and be there in five minutes. Jesus didn't have a car. He went by these things that we all have at the bottom of our legs. He was walking. So 
it really is a road trip, and it really is most direct to go through Samaria. Some people went around. So he stops at a well. He's tired. He's thirsty. A woman comes. He said, could you draw me some water? She's got three strikes against her. Anybody who, who reads the story in the first century or the second century would know she's got three strikes against her. Her first strike, she's a woman. You know, women aren't thought too highly of in the first and second century. Some would argue that they still aren't today, which is unfortunate. So she's a woman. She's a Samaritan. Oh my gosh. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They really thought that one didn't worship correctly, and the other group thought that the other didn't worship correctly. Does that sound anything like you uh, heard about in today's world? You know, pointing fingers at each other? Well, you know, you use, you know, hymns. Well, you use contemporary bands. Ah, it's all going straight, you know, cats and dogs sleeping together. It's at a catastrophe. Whatever. You know, pointing fingers. So they enter into this conversation in, in you know, why, would I, why would you ask me for water? I can tell by your accent you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. And then we find out something else about her. She's a polygamist. You know, she's got these three different things that are strikes against her, and yet Jesus talks to her and gets more out of that conversation than he ever does out of the righteous, pious Nicodemus in the garden. She is so excited by the conversation, she goes and draws the rest of uh, the town to come and hear Jesus in person. Later in the text, if we had read it, uh, the townsfolk say, we, we believe first because you told us, but now we believe because we've seen and heard ourselves. But if they, she hadn't said anything, they wouldn't have come. Not in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day when they were there. So what does this story really matter for us? Do we really care how, where all those Samaritans came from? <laughs> Do we, you know, in the early Johannian community, are we really that concerned um, by purity laws or all of those kinds of things? Is this just another morality story that Jesus will talk to anybody? Look, he talked to that woman who was a Samaritan and a polygamist. Uh, you know, no. What Jesus does is he makes ministry happen where he is. You know, we plan for ministry. We have five-year plans, 10-year plans. You know, if we'd had a five-year plan last year, it would have been all blown up right now because at this time last year, no one had any idea that we would still be worshiping virtually at this time. No one had any idea and we will be for a while until enough people are vaccinated for us to be safe to be back in the space or close by, even outside. No one could have foreseen. There wasn't, Jesus didn't have a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, a 20-year plan, or even a one-year plan. He went from place to place as it happened to him, as he listened to the leadership of the Spirit, whatever called him, he went to that place, and he was there. He stopped for water, and let's just be honest, it's a rest stop. That's the whole purpose of this drop-off. It's a rest stop. I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, so are the disciples. We'll get some water, we'll get some food, and then we'll hit the road. This is just a stopping place, except it's not just a rest stop for Jesus. 
A woman comes and then ministry happens. A conversation, a transformative conversation that we get to overhear happens about water. Something you and I can't live without. We can go a couple of weeks without food. We can maybe, if we're careful, go a couple of days without water, but it's not wise. Water is the necessity of life. In a sort of desert climate, Jesus says to a woman, can I have water? She says, why would you ask me? He says, if you knew who he was talking to you, you would ask for water from me. And she's like, you don't even have a bucket to get water. What are you even talking about? And he says, I have a living water. And if I give it to you, if you connect with it, it will bubble up like a spring from within you. And you won't ever be thirsty again. It'll just keep bubbling up inside of you. I know the Messiah is coming, the woman says. And Jesus says, I am. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament theology, Hebrew Bible theology, I am is God's name. I am. Here's Jesus. I am. The one who is talking to you. I am. We don't know much else about this woman. She goes into town. She invites others to come to know this, this Jesus and experience this well that springs up inside. To know that they are loved, that they're a part of God's grace, that they're invited as much as anybody else, that for us, there is no Samaritan. For the Democrat, there is no Republican. For the Republican, there is no Democrat. There are only people to be loved. There's a great rift all over the world in which we live now. Some people are sure they're right. Some other people are sure they're right. And they're both right at the cost of the other being wrong. That's the challenge of the world in which we live today. And yet this spring of water that could spring up for us comes to us wherever we are whatever side we think we're on. Because in the end, there aren't really sides. There's only God. In the end, that's the only reality worth knowing. God, springing up as an eternal spring in us, refreshing us so that I don't any longer need to be right spent so much of my life needing to be right. Whether it was about my road trips and justifying them or about my theology that I was so sure was right. I don't need to be right anymore. What I need to be is loving. And that's what you see at Jesus at the well. Here comes a woman for the society of her time, three strikes against her. And Jesus just talks to her. Jesus just talks to her like she's a person. Not a woman, not a Samaritan, not a polygamist, not anything else. He brings it up, but there's no condemnation in it. Simply, this is the way that it is. 
and I've got water to offer you that could change you from the inside out. A spring that will bubble up eternally, forever. Do you want it? What would it look like if we treated each other not by our labels or our ideas about each other, but just like a person? Just like a person. Person who happens to be an immigrant. Person who happens to be white. Person who happens to be black. Person who happens to be red or yellow or purple or whatever it is. What would it be like in a world where we just treated each other like this moment that we're in conversation with each other is the only moment? How many conversations have you been in recently where in that moment you were already somewhere else? Somebody interrupts you, asks how you are, you say fine, and you say, and how are you? And then they start to tell you. Well, you didn't really want to know. All you wanted was the fine response to move on. You were just walking by, and now suddenly you're in a conversation. My whole family, it drives them crazy about me. I get into a long conversation. I went to return a part to my neighbor in West Virginia because it was falsely delivered to our house. Linda was at the house. We were packing up. We were supposed to be coming back. This was earlier uh, in January. We were coming back. It was like January the 1st or January the 2nd, somewhere around there. We were headed back to Alexandria from the West Virginia house. And there was this part that was on my front that had been misdelivered. God only knows how long it had been sitting there because we don't even go onto the front porch. I don't know. So I took it down and walked over to my neighbor's house. Linda's, you know, getting things ready at the house, packing up the car, getting everything ready to go. I'm gone. I don't even know how long I'm gone. I, I'm sure it was longer than five minutes. It was probably an hour. I've never met the neighbor. The neighbor starts talking to me. His uncle comes out on the porch. We get into this long conversation. Um, that's not to pat myself on the back, but wherever you are, be there. If you ask somebody how they're doing, ask them how they're doing and be prepared to stop long enough to find out. If you don't really care, don't ask. It's not polite. I'm sorry, it's not polite to ask how someone is and expect a, a perfunctory answer. Fine, good. Because that's all you've made time for when you ask that question. What happens if they tell you, my life has just fallen apart? Someone precious to me just died from COVID-19. Someone's in the intensive care unit I may never see again, and they won't let me in the hospital be near them. What do you say then? Oh, sorry about that. Oh, got a meeting. Jesus makes every encounter an opportunity for ministry. And by ministry, I don't mean he doesn't say, now believe this. He just loves the woman right where she is. And when the moment's right in the conversation, if it naturally goes there and she says, I'm expecting the Messiah, it's me. Now, none of you will be saying that in your conversation. I'm waiting for the Messiah. It's me. That will not be the content of your conversation. But who knows where a conversation will go? And if you're really there, the sky's the limit. And even that's not a limit, because God is infinite. You and I are seed planters in this beautiful world of God.
And we have been given as a gift the bubbling brook of eternal life springing up inside of us. And it's not meant for us alone. It's not meant to be hoarded. So, no matter where you go, there you are. Be there. Be there. When you catch yourself rushing from place to place without time to stop, ask yourself, is this really who I want to be? And even more than that, is this really who God wants me to be? That I don't have time to stop and be here. Because ministry, loving, hope, happens where you are. And it's for everybody. Everybody. You can't tell me there's someone God doesn't already love and who God wishes that they knew it. You can't. So, I encourage you to spend some time this week with the chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. To recognize wherever you are, God's in it with you right now. Right now. And every conversation, every moment matters.